Today's scripture reading comes to us from the book of Psalm. It's chapter 9, verses 1 through 11. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and is given to us in love. Thanks, Jeff. Good morning. We are continuing our sermon series focusing on the the different dimensions of God, of of His character and who He is and what that means for us as we are in relationship with Him. Uh, Through the past month or two, we've looked at Him uh, as God the Father, as God the Shepherd, God the Artist, and um, a, a myriad of different ways in which God's character relates to us as His people. Today, uh, I have the privilege to talk about God as judge. And today we're going to look at judge, uh, God as judge, we're going to look at judgment, we're going to look at justice, all of these things, uh, um, to be honest, we don't really like to talk about a whole lot. Uh, That's kind of difficult. But here's what I think is going to happen today. I really hope that we look at God's role as judge, as his judgment, and even justice itself, perhaps in a new light today, and one that we have never looked at before. Um, Recently, or sorry, this wasn't recently actually, so this is when I was finishing up college. I had um, totaled a car a couple years before, I've told some of y'all that story before, and uh, a buddy had given me uh, like a 30-year-old car that was falling apart, and uh, I was graduating college, and I wanted something that I could actually drive around that wasn't falling apart. So, I called up my uncle, and he was living in Raleigh at the time, and he had an old, like, 20-year-old Mercedes. So it was, like, 10 years newer than the car I had been driving, uh, and it wasn't falling apart. He took meticulous care of it. Great guy. Uh, really takes care of his stuff. So I was pumped about it. He was going to give me a great deal on it. The only problem with this old Mercedes was that the air conditioning didn't work. And, you know, when I was finishing up college in the upstate of South Carolina in the fall and the spring, that wasn't a huge deal. Uh, I just held the windows down on the 80, sometimes 90 degree days. Not terrible. But when I graduated and I moved down to Charleston and it was May, things got a little tricky. Even rolling the windows down didn't help when it's 100 degrees with, you know, heat index of 120 and the humidity out of, the, out of this world. I couldn't put my hand out the window because the car was so hot that I couldn't even do that. 
So, and some of you know me well enough to know how bad of a judgment call this was, but here's what I decided. I'm going to fix it myself. And so I looked up, uh, this was before YouTube videos kind of could teach you how to do everything. So uh, I could get online and I, I looked up the problem and the, the blower motor for the air conditioning was broken. It's a known problem, these old Mercedes. And so uh, I was like, well, maybe I'm in over my head. So I took it to the mechanic. The mechanic said, this is going to cost you like $1,500. I was like, $1,500, that's so much. And he said, well, the labor involved to fix this is why it's so expensive. And so I made my second judgment call, which was like, well, then I'm going to do it. So I took it home, printed out those instructions that I, I had, and I went to work, and I started taking it apart. The blower motor in these old Mercedes is under the hood, and a lot of times these old Mercedes have uh, one windshield wiper, right? Just one for the whole uh, windshield. And I had to take it completely apart. I had to take off all the things that were on top of the blower motor. I mean, I took this whole thing apart, and I threw all the parts in a big bin. And I replaced the motor. And I turned the car on, and the air conditioning didn't work. And I looked down at um, this bin next to me with all these spare parts <laughs> haphazardly thrown in there. And I was like, there's no going back from this. <laughs> and I had no idea what to do. My air conditioning still didn't work. And so I limped back to the mechanic with my head down. And I said, I just need you to put this right. It's like, I don't need you to fix my air conditioning, but just... I can't drive around with no windshield wiper and who knows some of these other parts that I took out that were above the blower motor. I don't know what they are, um, but they're probably integral to the car running. So please just put this thing right again. And they said, okay. And so then I lost something like five or $600 because um, I did the first $500 worth of work, which was taking it all out. So anyway, this is why I tell you this. This is a good look at what it means for God to rule and reign as a righteous and upright God, a judge. So what does a judge do? Let's think about a judge. He makes uh, discernments. He passes judgments. That's what a judge does, right? He makes decisions about what is right and what is wrong. He makes judgments. And Webster's uh, defines judgment as this. It's the process of forming an opinion or evaluation by discerning uh, as a formal utterance of an authoritative opinion. So to make a judgment is to discern what to do about a situation or a person. So in biblical language, we see God's role as judge as he makes these authoritative opinions and statutes and rules as judgments that he makes to uphold justice. And the funny thing uh, about judgment and justice is that we often think about one as negative and one as positive, right? I promise I'm going to get back to the car in a second. We often separate those two things. We think of just judgment as punitive, condemning, focusing on the negative aspects that a judge does. And we often think about justice as positive, whether socially or spiritually. We think about it as a positive thing, right? And yet, what the Bible tells us constantly is that judgments... And justice are intertwined. They're inseparable. You can't pull those two things apart. So this means that judgment is neither punitive and condemning only, uh, and it's also not vindicating and positive only either. It's both. 
So what does justice mean then? What does judgment and justice mean for us? Well, in a biblical sense, it means this. It's putting right what is wrong. That's what justice is. Is God putting right what is wrong. So God sitting in judgment over the world is he's saying, I want to put what is wrong right again. What your inept hands have put so wrong, irredeemably it seems, like me in the car, he wants to put right again. Like that mechanic who could look at that bin somehow and say, I can put this thing back together. That's what God does when he sits in judgment and justice over the world. He says, I see this thing and I want to put it right again. And we don't, I, I know I don't view God this way often. Um, in a lot of ways, we, we minimize his justice and his judgment in a lot of ways. His role as judge. Some of us look at, uh, like I said earlier, his role as punitive and condemning. We only see him in that wrathful way, whether it's to us or to the world. And in doing this, we put ourselves in his judgment seat as well. Constantly saying, this person should be judged, this person should, the world should. And yet that is God's role only. Some of us minimize or truncate his role as being positive only. We think he's a God who only upholds and cares about justice in a social sense. We completely disregard the punitive aspects of God's role as judge and the necessary condemnation of the sin of this world. In doing that, we downplay and deny his holiness as well. But I really believe what we're going to see today, we're going to see in this psalm, is that God's role of judge is holistic. It's all of those things. It's a putting of things right in every single sense, spiritual, cultural, mental, emotional, physical, individual, and corporate. And that's what our passage is saying today. The psalmist is praying, praising God for his role as judge. Because he knows what that means. He knows that God can and will set what is wrong right in the world. And today we're going to see three ways. If we look at God's role as judge in this way, what we're going to see is that we need his judgment. And the world needs it. And we're going to see this in three ways. First, we must submit ourselves to God's judgment. Two, we must show the world the, necess- the necessity of his, judge- excuse me, of his judgment. And three, we must seek his judgment in times of need. So pray with me. Father, um, as we come to this text, um, we do praise you for your role as judge in that you want to set what is wrong right again in this world. You are in the business of putting all things right again because you care. God, and that truly is a life-changing and life-altering thing. Open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to this text now as we dive in. And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen. So first, we must submit ourselves to, to God's judgment. What, what's fascinating about this psalm is that uh, he talks about God's role as judge uh, and upholding the world in justice uh, and the deliverance with that. He talks about it in a positive sense, which again, kind of, it, it, to me, it feels like it goes against every grain of how I typically think about judgment. He says this in verses 1 and 2. He says, I'll give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I'll recount all of your wondrous deeds, and I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praises to your name, O Most High. Now, you you might look at that and think, uh, well, that's just the intro. That's just 
A lot of psalms start like this. It's the basic introduction for the praise of God. Um, but I do truly believe that if that was true, if that was just an intro, uh, if he would not go on to talk about justice in the positive way that he does later. And if judgment was a negative thing only, it would be odd to start this way, right? And immediately following these verses, he goes straight into God's judgment as a personal deliverance and restoration, which is amazing. He says this, When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence, for you have maintained my just cause. You've sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. See, he intros this psalm praising God in a positive light and then praising his righteous judgment personally. This is a personal experience that he's going through. And what we're going to see this morning is that just like the psalmist, we also must submit to the righteous judgment of our good and loving Father. And here's why. We need to be set right. If we believe that God's judgment is to uphold justice in setting all that is wrong right again, we, more than anyone else, know that we need to be set right again, don't we? And this is actually a positive and restorative thing. Because God's judgment over us that we need to submit to, without it, we can never be restored in His image, in the way that we were created to be originally, before sin. Just as the psalmist was saved and vindicated from his enemies by God, his judge, through his righteous judgment, we need to be saved and vindicated from our own enemy, the enemy of death and sin and Satan. I struggle to view God this way. I, and I don't know about you, I often view him as, when I think of his role as judge, as condemning And condemning me. And spiteful even sometimes. To me. When things go bad, when tough circumstances come, it's so hard not to think, God is punishing me for this thing. And though this is true, that in rare circumstances, God uses things, tough circumstances, loss, hard times, to change us, it's always done in a disciplinary way over his good and loving posture towards his children, not in a wrathful and abusive way, taking his anger out on us. This is why the psalmist and and we must constantly be coming before him, confessing our sins and being reminded over and over of his righteousness to save us, to set what is wrong right again. Daughter Mike Williams puts it this way. He said, God's righteous disposition towards his covenant people is to be loving, to be gracious and merciful. And it is right that he be so. Covenant blessing is closer to God's heart than his wrath. Scripture makes it clear that God is angry only reluctantly. He delights in mercy and loves to forgive. By contrast, uh, retributive justice is God's strange work. He will resort to it if need be but is alien to his instincts. God is slow to wrath. So what does this mean for us? It means we must submit to his judgment because it is only in that will we be set right again. 
And this means, uh, of course, our salvation, where He judged us according to our sin, found us wanting, but sent His Son to die for us instead. On the cross, Jesus took our sin, that sin that deserved God's wrath, that strange work that we just read about, and He took it onto Himself. He paid for it so that we could live, so that we could be restored in His image. And that's good news for us this morning. That's the gospel. That's why we're here this morning. It also means that we know that Jesus will return one day for good to set the world completely right again, once and for all, with us included. But here's what I think it also means. I I think it also means that we do need to come before Him as judge every day. And I don't mean for our salvation. Again, I mean to be restored be put right in our walk with Him every day. This is why confession is so important. We know that we still sin. We know that we still mess up. That we need to be put right again. And God, as our judge, wants to do that for us. Not to condemn us. Not to punish us. But to restore us. His disposition to us as our judge is gracious and loving and merciful. So this leads us to just... I think two application questions. One, how do you view God and His judgment? Is it just in a punitive, wrathful, and spiteful way at times like I do? And what would it look like for you to change your posture a little bit and see Him in a new light as judge, as restorative, as a putting of things right in your own life and in your own heart? Second, what would it look like for you to embrace the, God, the idea that God's disposition to you, even as judge, is loving, gracious, and merciful. Covenant blessing is closer to God's heart than wrath. He delights in mercy and loves to forgive. What would it look like to view Him in that way? I wonder. And this leads us to our second point. We've seen that God's role as judge is to set all that is wrong right again. Establishing righteous justice. And so we've seen that we must submit to that judgment. And now we're going to see that we must show the world that judgment. So this, this restorative justice uh, through our righteous and perfect judge, it's not just for us. It's, it's for the world. And our God is in the business of putting things right, not just for you and for me, but for all of his creation, for all of the world. Verses 7 and 8 say this, the, the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. He judges the world with righteousness and he judges the people with uprightness. I, I love how verse 7 puts it, kind of restating our thesis that God's role as judge is directly tied to his action of justice in the world. I think when we think about judgment and God's judgment for the world, maybe we can get our heads around the first point that for us it's restorative, but for the world, it's condemning. And indeed, some of the language of the Psalms like this uh, make it seem that way. But what we know about God and His judgment and wrath is that it is always focused on the sin and its destructive ramifications primarily. This is what it means when the psalmist says that God judges the world with righteousness, the people with uprightness. He judges according to the sin in the world, not the image bearers in it. God loves his creation, those who are made in his image. He deeply desires to put them right again as well. But there will always be those that won't turn to that 
and turn to him that don't want to be set right again. And that's the great tragedy of the world today. And this is why the, the psalmist uses explicit language in verses 5 and 6. He, he says, you've rebuked the nations. You've made the wicked perish. You've blotted their name out forever. And every memory of them has perished. He uses three like very visceral and decisive verbs here. Rebuked, destroyed, blotted out. Rebuke has the nuance of stopping the wicked in their, way, uh, in their ways, in their tracks. Destroy means he's caused them to die. Blot out emphasizes completely removing them from the scene. This is what this is, means for us. Yes, God's judgment is punitive at times. Left up to our own devices, our hearts are set on what is wrong, what is damaging to God's good creation, to the flourishing of all. And because we have a God who is committed to setting what is wrong right again, without repentance, without confessing faith in Jesus Christ, there will be those, many, that miss out on his good judgment, his restorative judgment and justice. There's always consequences for our actions. But, and what we've talked about earlier, is that often we truncate God's judgment to just that, right? And it's not less than that, but it's more than that. Today's culture, divine judgment is only looked at it in that perspective, right? Never as a positive thing. But Christians, we know that God's role as judge is to put what's wrong right. And here's what I think is why we have to show the world it. Not just for their salvation, though we do. Here's why. Without a divine judge sitting in power, there's no meaning in life. Think about it this way. People are constantly making judgments about one another, right? On what's good, what's wrong, what's right, on the world in general. Uh, we, We constantly tell each other what we think is right or wrong. Our culture makes judgments constantly, if you think about it. But if there's no divine judge who actually decides what is right and wrong, who's putting things right, who's making those decisions, then all the judgments we make are empty. It's all posture without any substance. In a sense, it's absurd. Keller puts it this way. How can there be any basis for saying that this is better than that, or one action is more meaningful than another, without someone on the bench deciding what is right and wrong? So it made me think this week, who is on the bench for us today making those judgments? As a culture, who makes those judgments today for what is right and what is wrong today? And I think in our context today, in 21st century America, we've decided that the public opinion is the divine judge. What makes the final judgment for justice, for right and wrong, even morality today is increasingly beginning to be decided on a public opinion level. We see celebrities, politicians, sports stars daily being put on the judgment seat and being found guilty constantly. But on the basis of what? On what basis and what foundation are they being judged on? There's a level of morality and purity that has begun to permeate wider culture that it's hard to find the foundation of. And that's alarming. That should be alarming for us. People are being tried in the court of public opinion and being found wanting, guilty, judged, and condemned. And we have no idea who's making those decisions. 
Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. A lot of these people did heinous and wrong things. They should be held accountable to what they have done. But my question is, by who? As Christians, we know that our hearts are prone to wickedness and sin. Do we, even us, trust ourselves to be the judge of others? And so much more than that, if we don't even trust ourselves to do it, can we really trust public opinion, regardless of which tribe you're a part of, and the new scions of truth with shaky foundations to really be the judge? Do we trust that? We can't. And as the church, we must begin to point one another in the world to the true judge. That is our role. The true judge who judges the world in righteousness, who ministers true biblical and social justice to the people in uprightness. A God who both cares about spiritual justice and vindicating his people and punishing the wicked. Who also cares about social justice and vindicating the least of these. His image bearers who suffer from oppression, racism, poverty, and bigotry. We have a righteous and perfect judge who's in the business of setting all of those things that are wrong right again. That is the judge we look to. That's whose truth we hold on to. Not public opinion. And I I have been thinking about this a lot lately, obviously. Um, And this summer, Andrea and I went out west. And we went to San Francisco And as we were walking through San Francisco, um, our buddy who we went to college with, who lives out there, his name's Brendan, great guy, he was looking out at the skyline, right? And it was very pretty, and we were looking out there, and he says, do you see that cell tower right there? And we said, yeah, we we, we see it. And he said, funny story about that cell tower. He said, about five or ten years ago, uh, all of San Francisco was having a really hard time getting cell service. And so the city officials made a judgment call and they said, hey, we're going to erect a huge cell tower big enough so that the whole city could have cell service. And it was, if you think about it, it's kind of ironic because that's such a plugged in community. You would think they want cell service no matter what. They were excited about it. But they were like, no, don't ruin our skyline. How could you put a cell tower in the middle of our beautiful skyline? How could you ever do that? But, you know, they had the power, they did it, they erected it, and they put it up in the middle of San Francisco. It didn't work. Didn't help sell service at all. They spent millions and millions of dollars changing the skyline of San Francisco by putting this thing in, and it didn't even work. So, five years in, they said, we're going to take it down. The city said, it doesn't work, we wasted our money, we're going to take it down. And the people said, how are you going to ruin our skyline? Don't you dare take our cell phone tower down. You're going to ruin our skyline. It had become such a part of them and their lives that the thing that they used to think they didn't want, five years later, it had become such a part of their city. They were like, don't you dare take this down. And that is fascinating to me. If there is nothing... To, well, to be completely honest, I feel like, like that's actually me as an illustration. <laughs> um, I, I feel that so much. Uh, and I do feel like public opinion is no different than that. What they held on to five or ten years ago, that they denied, that they said was wrong, they're champions of five to ten years later. And I'll be honest, I'm, I'm a 
good millennial. I grew up in the transition from offline to online. I'm, I'm tempted to get online and be swayed by the masses. I, and I have before. Public opinion means a lot to me. Truly, I, I, I'm just going to be completely honest. But I constantly feel that pressure and temptation. And I have to force myself to remember that the court of public opinion who tries people does not really have the people's best interests in heart. And they don't have my best interests in heart. It will never give the answers to what is wrong in the world, what needs to be set right. Only the good and perfect judge can do that. So let me ask you this. Who do you allow to be the divine judge? Who do you think that will set wrong, set right what is all wrong in our world today? Who is it for you? Is it the political party that you adhere to? Is it the philosophy or ideology that you hold on to? Is it a person that you think will set all that is wrong right again? Here's the thing. All those things, politics, social justice, economics, people, they can all be tools to setting the world right again. There's nothing wrong with those things, and they can be. But the ultimate judge of the world is the only thing that truly can and will set all that is right, wrong, right again one day. Only God, and he's doing it right now. His wisdom, his truth, his word that he has given us as revelation to us. That is our starting point. That's the framework through which we see all of this. That's our ending point. The world needs this more than they ever could think possible. Will we show them? And this brings us to our final point. We've seen that God's role as judge is to put the world right again and that we must submit ourselves to that judgment. We must show the world his judgment. And now we're going to see that we must seek his judgment in our times of need. So seeking God's judgment. I I love where this psalm ends up because if we've turned the way we look at judgment on its head a little bit, uh, this ending kind of seals that in place. Here's why. We have a righteous judge that we can hope in and for in our times of need. And we, we know this. And we as Christians know this. And, and we know this because more than anyone, we know that we have a sympathetic judge. Uh, whenever you look at... Uh, so I used to watch the People's Court growing up when I was sick from school. Or Mari, all those different uh, courtroom shows. Or Mari's not a courtroom show. Judge Judy, she was my girl. Um, but they always sit up on the bench, right? They're up there. And that's like a show of power, right? They're, they're sitting up there in judgment over everyone. Yet, what we know as Christians is that we have a God who left the bench, who was, is, and does sit up there in power, but also came down himself as a sympathetic judge, walked among us. He left the bench to come and be brought lower than us so that we could be saved. That's the God that we serve. That in Jesus, he left the bench to meet us in our need. That's incredible. This is why it says in verse 9, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. That is an intimate thing to say. And in verse 10, he says, those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. He can only say that because he knows he has a judge who sympathizes with him. 
And we can only say that because we know even more than the psalmist did that we have a good and righteous judge that sympathizes so much with our need that he died for us. This is why we can say, along with the psalmist in verse 11, sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion, tell among the people his deeds. What does this mean for us? It means a few things. It means first, though, primarily, that we can have comfort that God is at work to put things that are wrong in our lives, our broken circumstances, our sinful behaviors, He can set them right again. Wherever the brokenness of the world has encroached into your life this morning, you can hope that you have a God, a righteous judge, that wants to set it right again. And here's the hard thing. We don't know when that will be. Some of you are in a period of waiting and longing right now, and it can feel like it's never ending. And you want to cry out, why God, why are you taking so long? And for that, I I don't have an answer why he is. But I do know this, he wants to set that brokenness and that wrong right again. Those of you who have had major hurt that's been done to you in the past, that still haunts you to this day, Know that we have a God who's in the business of setting all of that hurt done to you right again. Those of you that are struggling with loss and vocation, relationship, loved ones, know that we have a God whose heart is broken over that loss and will set it right again. And again, the challenge for us and the task for us is that we don't know when that will be. We can know this, that we do have a God who intervenes in history. He intervenes in our lives to set what is wrong right. That is his judgment at work now. We have a God who has done that for centuries. The Israelites knew it. The early church knew it. And we know it today. And we have a God who has promised us that one day every tear will be wiped away. Death will be done away with for good. Satan and his reign of sin and destruction will be destroyed forever. And that day is coming. Your hurts, your needs, your brokenness, your waiting may not be set right again until that day. And that doesn't make your current pain any less visceral or hurtful or powerful. But perhaps it will give you a little bit of hope. We can both thank and praise God for setting what is wrong right here and now, but we can also hope for the day where he does it for the last time ever. Theologian Alan Ross puts it this way, every act of deliverance is cause for praise and every act of deliverance is a preview of the final deliverance to come, which is cause for even greater praise. I'd be remiss uh, if I didn't make one more application point before we get to the conclusion from the psalm. It's this. Because we have a righteous and just God who is a stronghold for the oppressed, who doesn't forsake the afflicted, that means something very, very clearly for us. It means that the poor, the needy, the oppressed, they're close to God's heart. Because they're the ones who need his justice, his setting, what is wrong, right again the most. Those who suffer from racism and victims of an unjust economic system, those who have been born into poverty, it's those who are close to God's heart. It's those who God wants to be a stronghold for. It's those that we must champion if we want to be close to the heart of God as the righteous judge of all the earth. 
That's part of our calling because that's who God is. Again, Mike Williams puts it this way. God is concerned for the oppressed and the downtrodden. He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. God's exercise of justice on behalf of the poor and oppressed is closely linked to his providential care for the whole of creation. We are responsible for one another on the basis not only of a a shared humanity, but that humanity is called to be a reflector of God's own righteousness. The bummer thing about my Mercedes um, is that it never did get air conditioning. (laughs) Um, But I am glad that I I didn't spend all the money on fixing it, just like half of it, um, because uh, I could, you know, hold out and save up maybe for another car, which um, did come in a, a year or two later. But what I think is funny about that story is that they just set what was wrong right again for me, um, which I really do appreciate. What's the truth of the gospel, though, is that God is not just going to set what is wrong right again, though he will. When he comes back, it's going to be set what is wrong right again, and then even more that's why when we look at the panels in the back, it goes from a garden and the mountains in the background to a city. Because in the restoration of all things, when Jesus returns to set all of this right again, it's going to be even more than it was in Eden. It's going to be even more than it was in the garden. God is going to bring the city of his goodness, of his grace and his love and his restoration here. And all wickedness, all sin, all brokenness is going to be done away with forever. And that is our hope in these times, if we didn't have a righteous and good judge, then we wouldn't have that hope. But we do. And that's why we can submit to his judgment, both for our salvation, but also every day for that restoration. That's why we also can show the world that judgment, because we can give them that hope that they need to no longer be blown away with the wind of public opinion and their own sinful thoughts and desires, and they can look to the true and righteous judge who wants to set what is wrong right again. And ultimately, for us, in our times of need, in our own brokenness, we know that we have a sympathetic judge who left the bench, came out from the bench, and he walked among us. So much so that in our times of need, he weeps with us. He meets us where we are, even to the point of dying, so that we may be saved. That is the judge that we have. And he left us this table to remind us of that. He left us this table of, of his body and his blood, not just as a symbol, but something more than that. A taste of what is coming when he comes again to judge the living and the dead, to do away with wickedness forever. This table is a is a picture of that so come and have a taste of that good sympathetic judge will you stand with me